Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles to optimize human performance. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, so that's at The Pricep, you'll notice that I've been doing specific training for a particular event over the last two weeks. And this is what the episode is all about. This is all something new. And these Progress Theory episodes will aim to discuss how I am putting science into practice into my own physical challenges. As the best way to learn about human performance and sports science is to put it into practice, see what works, what didn't work, reflect on the results, review, and then repeat the process. However, what is important about these progress theory episodes is how they're going to focus on how I am making my programming decisions. What information am I using? How am I determining what is important for me and my training for a particular event at that given time? And it is these decision-making skills which I will hope help all of our listeners make their own programming decisions. What is important about these progress theory episodes is how they're going to focus on how I'm making my programming decisions. What information am I using? How am I determining what is important for me and my training for a particular event at that given time? And it is these decision-making skills which I hope will help all of our listeners make their own programming decisions. Now, making a training program that is both specific to you as an athlete and your goal, I think, is difficult and requires a lot of thought as to what to include in your program, what to not include in your program, and decide where the right level of training is for you. So, for example, working on too many things at once may appear specific to your goals, but the accumulation of all this will just create way too much fatigue, which eventually just decreases performance and even increases the risk of injury, which is obviously what you do not want. And it is these types of issues that this podcast will discuss. Now, I won't just list my program because that would be dull. I will, however, go through key decisions and scientific principles which I think make up the important components of my programming and explaining my rationale behind them. So, the first challenge. The first challenge is the gauntlet at the Festival of Endurance at Hever Castle, hosted by Castle Triathlon. The gauntlet is a 1.9-kilometer swim, a 90k bike, and finished with a half marathon run. So pretty much a half Ironman, but obviously you can't use the word Ironman. Now, I've only got eight weeks to prepare for this, which isn't much considering, I'd say like the poor training state that was in at the beginning of the year. I was focusing on other things, getting the progress theory set up. So training wasn't my number one priority. So I'm coming into this not at 100% full fitness. Now, what are my goals? Well, I've learned from previous challenges on the progress theory not to make silly and unachievable goals within a certain time frame. This is the first time that I've ever performed or competed in a 70.3. So it's all about providing some kind of aerobic base, which I hope to use for further challenges. However, I have done a half Ironman swim and I have done a half marathon before. So what I would like to do is either equal, maybe slightly improve on these components. So I have done a half Ironman swim in, it was about 45 minutes, uh, and I've done a half marathon run in two hours. Not amazing 
results. But then again, I'm not exactly an endurance athlete. So this is all completely new to me, which is going to be incredibly exciting. However, I do feel they are PBs that are there to be broken. And if I can do it while doing a 70.3, then all the better. Now, before we actually discuss different components, I think it's a good idea to have a little go at overviewing my training history. Now, I come from a background of rugby, weightlifting, tennis, some obstacle course racing. We did some more crossfit type functional fitness events towards uh, the later part of last year, maybe just before COVID. So I have a wide range of training history. However, I would not say that I am an endurance athlete at all. So this is all completely new to me. If you remember on the Progress Theory podcast, myself and coach Daryl Green, we did the concurrent training challenge where the idea was that we would try and increase strength over an 11-week period while at the same time training for a marathon. The aim for that marathon was around four hours. Um, I improved my strength, but unfortunately a calf injury at the beginning of the marathon meant that I pretty much limped around the whole course. So I did it in about five hours, nine minutes, I believe it was. So not a great result, but I think it was a big achievement that because I actually hurt my calf in the second kilometer. So I pretty much limped around in pain for, I'd say about 25 miles. That was definitely a huge learning curve. Injury history. I have had four knee surgeries, two ACLs, reconstructions, one on both legs, uh, and on my left side, I've had two further arthroscopies as well. So I have a history of knee injuries, uh, and recently I've been dealing with a problem uh, in my shoulder, which I've been speaking to uh, Watts Health down in Southampton, and we think I'm displaying symptoms of thoracic outlet syndrome, which I'll tie into some of the programming decision-making a bit later in this episode. Which actually... That leads us to what I want to discuss in today's episode. So the components of the training program I want to discuss are the following. Number one, what is the main focus? What is driving the majority of my decisions when creating this training program? And that is efficiency. Section two will focus on the general program microcycle layout and how I'm utilizing RPE, so the rating of perceived exertion, to make We'll make a judgment on intensity of each session and using that to drive programming decision-making. Section three will focus around my previous injuries or areas that I want to work on because I'm focusing on them because I think it will then in turn improve my efficiency at certain skills, which I will think hopefully will improve my ability to run, cycle and swim. And then the final section, we're going to focus a little bit about uh, some uh, methods I'm using in my weight training potentiation clusters, or sometimes they're known as contrast sets, uh, because there's a few reasons why I've, uh, I've included them as well. So those are the four things I want to discuss in this episode. So number one, skill first. Okay, The main focus of this eight-week program is efficiency. I want to become more efficient at the skills I'll be doing during the challenge because I know if I'm more efficient, I'll expend less energy, my heart rate will go down and my constant moving speed or consistent moving speed will go up without me perceiving to be working any harder. And these skills I'm referring to are swimming, cycling and running because those are the skills I'm going to be doing over and over again during the event. So I want to be efficient at those skills. Now, why is this important for me? So I think my training needs to be focused on making swimming, cycling, and running feel 
easier. So that's why I'm bringing this skill-first approach in. And when I think of skills, yes, we've got three independent skills of swimming, cycling, and running. But you may notice that if you start to, let's use running as, as an example. If we run faster, that's a different skill set. If we run faster than that, that's a different skill set. So skills can be broken down into different intensities. You've got your slow plodding run. That's the one skill set. You've got your faster run. That's another skill set. So I want to be efficient at all of these different components. And as soon as you change the intensity, you change the skill. So I need to be efficient at that particular skill. Now, if I don't have an efficient skill set, I believe there's no point in trying to target all my training into specific intensity zones. So I think if I did that, I could be then doing a lot of drunk miles, running, cycling, swimming, while performing less efficient skills. And I think that's going to either increase the recognition of that poor pattern, so I keep doing it, or it could lead to potential injury. I want every mile, every kilometer that I do to be specific to learning the skill set so I can be more efficient at it. I don't want these junk miles, you know, huge volumes for the sake of volume. I don't think that's going to work. And with my injury history with my knees, I think that will be very uh, poor thing to do. Now, this doesn't mean that I won't be training hard or I won't be training at an intense level, but I just will limit it. So I will kind of make a judgment based on, okay, I'm running at a certain intensity. This is a hard session today. However, if I think that I'm going to be producing loads of junk miles, I'm going to stop it there. I almost auto-regulate the session there and then. Stop the session. So that means everything that I've done is very specific to what I want to do. And I'm not accumulating that junk mile. So that means the next time I come to do a very similar session, I'm actually going to be adapted be able to be more efficient for longer. And that's how I'm going to get that long-term adaptation. Section two, the rating of perceived exertion. So RPE. My training week at the moment varies week to week, but generally we have around two cycles, two swims, and two runs. And this slowly changes because we start to add in brick sessions. Some weeks you focus more on running than others. It's sort of, you get a bit more of an overlapping situation because so you're not, not focusing too much on one discipline than the other to make sure you don't get an overload of fatigue in that particular discipline. However, for most of those sessions, regardless of what discipline and regardless of what point it is during the week, I am using ratings of perceived exertions as a level of or a guidance of intensity for that particular session. So the RPE scale was originated by Borgs and colleagues, and it's a subjective measure by the athlete on how they perceive the intensity of the exercise that they are performing. Uh, if you go onto Google Scholar, you can find that RPE has been used in pretty much all sports, uh, and there's a number of reliability and validity studies on the subjects. Uh, it seems like a very easy to use tool uh, that anyone can use. And I think that's a very good thing to do, especially as you're getting into a new sport. Now, the scale started around six being like super easy to 20 being this is unbearably hard. This is the hardest thing in the world. Uh, but it has other forms have been used from like one to 10, uh, even one to 100. For this particular challenge or this training program, I'll be using one to 10. Now, I need to be very broad with this use of the RPE because I think in endurance, 
People often perceive intensity based on physiological factors such as heart rate, your body temperature. But however, I think this could be limited. Um, if you think that you know, you're breathing harder, your heart rate's going, that's the only thing that you can measure intensity with, I think you're being quite limited. And it would be very, very limited for me. I need to include or take into account more how my musculoskeletal system is feeling. So if I'm doing repeats of 800 meters on a track, say I'm doing 8 to 12 reps with around 45 seconds rest. The first thing that's going to feel that my efficiency is going to be decreasing is how my legs feel. And I'm not thinking of some muscular fatigue. I'm thinking how my hamstring starts to get tight or certain tendons don't start to be quite so pliable. They're not storing and returning elastic energy as well as they could. Uh, then all of a sudden I'll start feeling very heavy. That's the first thing that goes, not my cardiovascular system. So I will feel fine, or my perception of how I'm feeling uh, is absolutely fine. However, how my body is feeling is completely different. So I need to be quite broad with how I'm perceiving the intensity of the session. And I honestly think as I become more efficient, I become more bouncy over the eight weeks, I probably will be relying a bit more on those cardiovascular type feelings of you know, breathlessness and heart rate and all of that. But I need to become more efficient at the skill before I'm able to do that. So I need to be quite broad uh, as I do it over the over time. With each session, if, for example, I've got an RP of six for a particular session, I will note down specific variables which I think are important to identify if I am improving. Now, for example, if running at five-minute kilometers is an RPE of six for me during week one, yet by week four, an RPE of six is uh, four-minute 40 kilometers, I know my running has improved because my level of perception of how hard something is is much faster. So in this case, I haven't used the running velocity to guide training, which is very common and you know, it's, it's a strategy that can be used. I'm using running velocity as the dependent variable to show that running is improving. So RP is guiding the training decisions, but the running velocity is the measure that I'm using to see if I'm actually improving. Now, there may be times during the training where I will use running velocity as a guiding factor. So kind of switching it over. And the reason for this is so I can gauge what certain paces I want to hit feel like. So if my best half marathon is two hours, you know, it's nothing special, but it would be great to improve on this or at least equal that after all the swimming and cycling. And now a two hour half marathon requires a five minute, 42 kilometer pace. So during brick sessions, I'm aiming for this running pace so I can understand what this pace feels like. So hopefully, running after, after cycling, running at a pace of 5 minute 42 kilometers may start to feel at around, I don't know, RP of 7. By the end of the eight weeks or nearing the, uh, towards the end of the eight weeks, this starts to feel like RP of 6 or 5 even. Again, it shows that I am... I have improved because I've become more efficient at the skill. I'm more efficient at the skill because I am utilizing less energy expending doing that skill. And in turn, that makes me perceive it feeling easier. Section three, 
And this is the exercise focus based on certain injuries that I've highlighted. And if you go to my Instagram account at the Pricep, you should be able to see there a post where I focused on three particular areas. Okay, and I truly believe that these three key areas are actually affecting the efficiency of the skills of swimming, cycling, and running. So it makes sense to focus on them. Then that will in turn improve, hopefully, the efficiency of movement elsewhere. And those particular areas are, I have poor motion around the cervical seven and thoracic T1 junction in the spine, so sort of upper thoracic tightness, uh, thinking it quite crudely there. Left hip impingement and my left foot being a poor shock absorber, which is clearly not very good for running. The first component is poor motion around the C7-T1 junction. Now, one of the reasons I am very aware of this particular area is that I've, I've had it assessed before. I've been, been to see Watt Health in Southampton, uh, but there's certain symptoms which seem to be radiating from this particular problem. One, I can only have a very thin pillow uh, because any thicker pillows or multiple pillows means I've got the sort of neck uh, flexion occurring and then all of a sudden I get a numb feeling going down, uh, especially my left arm, but usually both. And most recently, especially when cycling, the thing that makes me realize that I've got this issue is that when you're, say you're on a, on a Watt bike, you know, you're not <laughs> driving on the road, going through traffic, so you can have your head down. That seems to be a much more comfortable position for me. However, when you're cycling on the road, you have to have your head up, so you've got to have some kind of ex cervical extension there. And because of that, I seem to be getting symptoms of numbness in my hands to the point where I can't feel my hands at times, which is clearly, clearly a problem. I seem to have quite good ro uh, motion, sort of mid to lower thoracic. I seem to have quite good motion in my mid to upper cervical spine, but around the junction between the cervical and the thoracic spine seems to be completely jammed up. Uh, and this could be affecting what's happening in my rib cage, would affect what's happening at my shoulder, et cetera, et cetera. Now, T1 and T2 have the top and the second rib emanating from the sides of each one. And one of the key things which was a problem is that that particular articulation between the thoracic vertebrae and the rib seems completely tight and there's a lack of motion. And therefore, if there's a lack of motion there, there's a lack of motion in my upper ribs. Now, that's quite poor for certain reasons. Number one, the ribs, kind of, I like to think they act like a train tracks. So you've got the scapulothoracic joint where the scapula moves and glides around the, the thorax, the, the rib cage. And if the ribs aren't providing the proper train tracks for the scapula, you get poor scapula movement, and that's going to affect what your arm's doing, especially it seems to be more common when people move their arm overhead. So if I've got these ribs that just don't move, that's going to be a bit of a problem. On top of that, you need your ribs to sort of expand 360 when you breathe and then back. Expand 360 and then back. Now, if you've got ribs that don't like to move, that means your breathing's going to be affected because your ribs aren't elevating the way they should. On top of that, you've got the brachial plexus, which is running very close to your upper two ribs, very close to your clavicle. So if things aren't moving properly, then there's a higher chance that there's going to be some kind of pressing or some kind of pinch happening in there. So if that's happening, that's going to affect the sort of nerve signal emanating down your arm. So it may affect your ability to contract and 
perform certain movements with that particular arm. And I think that's definitely happening on my left arm. I can do all the serratus anterior exercises in the world, but if the, the signal is not getting through for it to fire properly, it's not going to be working as well as it could. So that's where we there, there I have displaying symptoms around thoracic outlet syndrome, and this is the particular reason why. Now, why is this poor for this particular 70.3? Well, I don't particularly want my hands going numb as I'm cycling for 90k. It also, when your arm is going through some, I wouldn't say extreme motion, but definitely motion that doesn't always go through, which is definitely what happens during swimming, during the freestyle. You're going to have times when the flexion and extension of the shoulder is going to go through uh, quite extreme angles, especially if you're not used to it. So if you don't have that motion in the ribs, don't have that motion in upper thoracic and lower cervical, then that's going to affect your ability for your arm to move in those positions. So this is a particular area that really needs sorting. So currently I'm doing some physio work just to try and get some motion back in that area and also doing a lot of motion to try and get movement in that part of the spine. One thing I think has been really good for emphasizing this is breathing exercises with the shoulders in a flex position and maybe with a bit of external rotation as well. So you may have seen people do a particular exercise where they have the palms facing upwards and they're holding onto a dowel. Then they put their elbows up overhead and they place their elbows on the edge of a bench or on a box and then move their head forward. So you get a, like a, a lat stretch, I'm saying that inverted commas, a lat stretch, but you also have the, the shoulders in a very flexed and externally rotated position. I get in this position to create that stretch but then what I do is I spend a lot of time doing breathing exercises, trying to encourage my ribs to expand, especially in that upper posterior area of the rib cage. If I can coach myself to be able to do that, hopefully the ribs will start moving properly and then we're going to get better motion between the thoracic or the, the rib cage and the scapula. Injury section two, which is around the left hip impingement I currently have. I seem to have a bit of a compensatory pattern because of this uh, hip impingement. And I'm not, I'm not sure where it has necessarily come from, but it definitely stems from the three knee surgeries I had uh, quite some time ago now. So in order to keep my left foot straight, my body compensates for the fact that my femur and my pelvis don't like to internally rotate relative to each other. Try and picture that your feet are facing forward on both legs and then your pelvis is like a, at a right angle in comparison to where your feet are pointing. My hips don't like that position. So what my body will try and do to try and get out of that 90 degree position will be either to move the knee outwards to the side or to rotate the pelvis to face the opposite direction, so to the right. Now this may, you know, the way I'm describing it may be sound quite exaggerated, but at the end of the day, when you're running and everything's facing forward, that becomes a problem over time. So I start to get real cramping and pain in my left adductor and my hip flexor, likely because they are working extra hard either to avoid the hip going into that position or to try and gain some hip internal rotation as I land to try and deal with that weight acceptance phase. So this needs to be changed because this is I can manage it over a 800 interval but to do it for 21.2 kilometers, it's not very good. And I start to really feel it after 10 kilometers. So what I've been doing for that is focusing a lot on 
band distraction, particularly in the posterior and lateral direction to try and just create some force to open up that hip joint a little bit more. Uh, so what's happening is I'm in a sort of lunge position leaning forward and then I've got the band pulling on the to the back and to the side uh, and that seems to be working very well. Gets a bit of motion acting there. Once you have motion, you can't just leave it. You actually then have to utilize it and program yourself to be able to use this new range of motion. And what I've been doing is lots of different lunge variations. So I try and use the distractions to get a bit more range out of my hip. And then I try and encourage that pattern, which it obviously doesn't like going into when it's a bit stuck. And I do that with normal lunges, but at the same time, I do that with rear foot elevated lunges. So that means that my front foot, which is being loaded, will have a shin angle, which is leaning further forward. And I would do a front foot elevated lunge so that my shin bone is a bit more parallel during that. And people like to utilize those two variations of the lunge pattern to focus on different parts of the gait cycle. I'm not sure how much it, well, it does relate to it because obviously during the gait cycle, you go through that whole range. And sometimes it is nice to actually focus on both because you start from different positions and you allow the body to load itself from different start positions. It's quite good. So that's been a, a particular focus of me. Get range using the band distractions and then utilize a lot of lunge variations. I do a lot of other hip stuff as well, but this seems to be more focused on the particular issue at hand. And number three, my left foot. So what the foot does when it lands is that it goes through pronation. And this pronation is really important to drive internal rotation at the shin and drive internal rotation at the, at the femur and that loads particular muscles which are needed during the what's known as the weight acceptance phase of gait. Now, if your foot's not working properly, that means you're not going to get that motion further up the chain. In order for that pronation to happen, the foot almost acts like it's unlocked. There's a lot of little joints in the foot as you have a number of little sort of short and sort of cuboid-esque bones that occur in the foot. So we need a point where they sort of unlock and allow the foot to pronate. And when they allow the foot to pronate, you get the flattening out of the arches of the foot. And that's how it acts like a spring to dissipate that force. Now, if those midfoot joints don't unlock to allow that, that means that force isn't being dissipated. That force needs to be dissipated further up the chain. So some people might develop Achilles problems. Some people might uh, develop knee problems, that sort of thing. I have particular high arches. So that's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing, but it might mean that it's harder for me to unlock the, the bones of the foot to allow that to happen. And I also have quite a tight, what's known as a subtalar joint. So the articulation of the joint between the heel bone and the, the bone that just sits on top of it. And that bone is the talus, which ultimately makes part of the ankle joint. So if those joints aren't working properly, that means we're not going to get the loading response from the foot that we need. So if you do that, if you run for a half marathon and your foot isn't unlocking and dissipating the force like it should, it's like running along on a peg leg. And that's going to develop a lot of stress, which is going to stress the rest of the tissues in your leg, which you technically don't want. So what I've been trying to do is try and gain better motion out of my foot to enable this to happen. And I've been doing that in a, different, a number of different ways. 
One, which is something that I've only recently done, and I actually quite rate it, is using toe spaces for a number of different barefoot exercises, including lunges. Allowing the, the toes to not be sort of gunked up like a claw, uh, allowing them to spread a little bit enables the rest of the foot to move much better. Like I highly recommend them. Uh, I've been also with a, my wife as my physio, we've been doing a cuboid thrust just to try and avoid uh, any tightness happening around that midfoot. And then once I've developed this motion, also using wedges, uh, I then incorporate some, uh, an increased level of volume of hops and skips, particularly on a single leg. So I've been doing much more skipping. These are low-level plyometric activities, you know, gain motion, and then just allow it to perform the motion that it's going to do over and over again while running. This, combined with the single leg work, will hopefully allow the foot to become the shock absorber that it needs to be during the first phase of gait. And finally, for section four, it's this use of contrast sets. So what is a contrast set? It's when you pair two exercises together. One is a very heavy exercise or a very forceful exercise. And then this is followed by an exercise which is done more, let's say in inverted commas, explosive. So it'll be lighter and you move it with greater velocity. So the idea behind it is that you utilize the enhanced neural pathways that happen before when you do the heavy exercise to then enhance the more explosive ballistic or plyometric exercise you do later. And there's a number of neurological reasons why this happens. It's known as a potentiation effect. It improves the neural efficiency that's happening at the time. There's a number of other physiological reasons for why they think this phenomenon might happen. This could be from... Uh, so within the muscle cell, you get the sarcoplasmic reticulum, releases calcium during a contraction. Then if you do something explosive straight afterwards, it then utilizes this, the muscle utilizes this calcium to enhance its own uh, muscular contraction. Uh, so there's a number of different physiological ways why they think this potentiation phenomena actually occurs. Uh, and contrast sets look to try and take advantage of that. I'm probably too strong for an Ironman. Now, that's not me saying I am very strong but to run half Ironman or 70.3 I probably don't need to be as strong as I am however like I'd like to keep that strength because there's a number of other different challenges which will involve high levels of strength I'd like to do after this so I want to try and maintain that strength as much as possible Uh, but I can't do too much of it because that will accumulate so much fatigue which is then going to affect all the other stuff which is more important right now. From an S&C point of view, I think I need to be much more bouncy, more explosive, and I certainly need to be able to better absorb force when I land. Uh, motion will definitely help that because you need it, because that's what you go through when you go through the gait cycle. So how am I utilizing contrast sets to try and enhance this? Well, I'm doing it two separate days from my weight training sessions. Day one, I'll have the front squat. And the reason I've chosen the front squat is purely because I want to try and maintain strength in that exercise. I'm not choosing it because, oh, it's the most sport-specific for running or anything like that, although you could make a few arguments for certain components of the front squat for it. However, I'm choosing it mainly because I want to... That's my high neural output exercise for the entire week. However, I'm only doing singles at this exercise. 
If I'm spending all this time focusing on linear type exercises to try and improve the hip internal rotation acting, well, at the hip, and then I go and do loads of work with my feet pointed out in a, in a squat position where you know, you're getting stronger in, that's going to sort of negate all the other rehab stuff that I'm doing, which is programmed specifically to make me better at absorbing force and make me better and more efficient. And being more efficient is the key thing of this whole program. I think front squatting singles is a low enough volume to try and maintain that high neural output, but also utilize it to try and take advantage of that potentiation effect. I then coupled that exercise with some form of either ballistic or plyometric actions. That could be either a vertical jump, box jump, broad jump, or a depth jump, something along those lines, or hurdle jumps. Now, I this will probably change, and that's because it will change based on logistics, what I have, equipment I have available to me. Either I'm training at home, I'm probably going to use a vertical jump or a broad jump. If I'm training at work, I'm probably going to be focusing more on box jumps and hurdle jumps because the equipment is actually there. I'm not going to worry too much about, oh, you're doing a front squat, so you need to do something vertical. I'm purely doing it from like, you're going to get this high neural drive, let's take advantage of it on some kind of explosive activity. The research on it has to, both of them have to be specific relative to each other, isn't as strong as I think. And I, I think there's no point focusing way too much on that. Then I'm going to do a contrast set on another day, a similar thing, but for heavy reverse lunges. And the reason I've chose reverse lunges is because I'm doing all these lunge exercises to try and improve motion uh, at the foot and the hip. So that's my time to try and load them a bit more effectively. If I'm loading them, let's take advantage of that high kneel drive. I'll do some kind of explosive exercise afterwards as well. And what I like about incorporating all of this is that it takes advantage of the great information that was given to us in the Rich Blagrove episode of The Progress Theory, where he talks about, really with runners, you should include some kind of strength, some kind of ballistic. So ballistic means like jumps, throws, uh, and plyometric, so reactive stuff. Uh, you can either incorporate that into more of a periodized long-term plan where you focus on one before moving on to the other, or you do it more concurrently. And this is definitely a more concurrent version of that. So this takes a, um, into account all the stuff, the great stuff that Rich gave us in his Strength Training for Runners episode. So there you have it. Those are the key components of my current training for the gauntlet at the Festival of Endurance at Castle Triathlon. So just to summarize, efficiency is the main focus of my training at the moment, and it is the main driver behind the programming decisions. I'm currently using a 10-scale RPE when programming the intensity of sessions, except for sessions where I want to know what my RPE is for a given speed. And this is usually during brick sessions where I want to know how the five minute and 42 second kilometer pace feels like. On top of that, we've got key areas which I'm focusing on, which then in turn determine my exercise selection. So it's around that C7, T1 area of the spine, the hip impingement issue, and my ability of my left foot to not load and absorb force as well as it could do. So a lot of stuff focused around there. And then further SNC decision making where I've decided to incorporate contrast sets into my program. However, you'll probably notice there are plenty more things we could actually talk about regarding this program, uh, including the programming over the eight weeks. Um, and this is something that I'm definitely going to cover in the next few episodes. So keep an eye out for them. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode and hopefully it sparked some ideas in your own training. Please follow the Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube. Leave a comment or share us on your story. We really appreciate the help as we grow the channel. Also, head to our website, www.theprogresstheory.com, where you can find all of our other content. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.